Starting with Lebanon in 1996, when I got there, I got there in about March of 1996, and in April that year, Hezbollah and Israel got into a war. It was a 17-day war. During the day, the Israelis hit 30 villages in southern Lebanon in an effort to deal the Hezbollah rocket crews a knockout blow. Arab nations have called for an immediate ceasefire. But essentially, Israel's aim was to destroy Hezbollah. What it actually amounted to was the Israelis telling all of the residents of southern Lebanon to evacuate the area because they were going to take on Hezbollah. And a lot of them did. About 400,000 Lebanese citizens made their way north. Meanwhile, in the port of Tyre, thousands of people fled the city in the hours before an Israeli deadline for attack. The Israelis had ordered civilians to leave but Israel launched its assault a full 90 minutes before the deadline. It was actually not very dissimilar to what we're seeing now in, in Gaza. Gaza's a lot bigger, uh, of course, and a lot more people. But Hezbollah has continued to defy Israel with more Katusha rockets, this time aimed at an Israeli school. The bloodshed is set to continue. Uh, so the people in Gaza are in a much worse situation. From Schwartz Media, I'm Ange McCormack. This is 7am. Ian Palmer was Australia's ambassador to Lebanon in the late 1990s. And although there's parallels with what he saw then and what's happening today in Gaza, the situation is very different. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu vowed to destroy Hamas and prevent it from ever launching an attack like it did on October 7. But is that even possible? Today, Ian Palmer on the history of Hamas and who would take its place if it were removed from Gaza. It's Thursday, November 2nd. Ian, Israel's stated aim in this war is to remove Hamas from Gaza. I want to ask if you can explain exactly what Hamas does in Gaza and what they're responsible for. Well, Hamas really got going in late 1987 at about the time of the first intifada or Palestinian uprising. In December 1987 in Gaza, an Israeli driver killed four Palestinian labourers and wounded nine when his car ran off the road. The Israelis termed it an accident. The Palestinians said it was premeditated murder. Whatever the case, the incident sparked an outbreak of Palestinian protests that spread like wildfire throughout the occupied territories. And initially, it was simply a humanitarian organization. It wasn't until about 1991, a couple of years later, that uh, Hamas actually formed a militant wing. Beneath the minarets of the Gaza Strip, a new Palestinian movement has been reading for jihad, or holy war with Israel. Uncompromising fundamentalists, the Hamas movement fights only for God. It is Israel's worst, by far the worst, and the bloodiest. An act of Arab terrorism that has left so many dead and so many injured. Hamas, the Palestinian extremists opposed to any peace with Israel by anyone, quickly admitted they did it. Revenging themselves, they said, 
Ironically, Israel initially actually was had a benign attitude towards Hamas because it saw Hamas as being an entity which would take away support from Fatah, which was a secular organization, and which Israel saw as being its main opponent. Fatah was the biggest part of the PLO. But uh, Hamas has grown uh, significantly and essentially started initially in Gaza, but it spread quickly to the West Bank. And it did very well because it was far more efficient at distributing social services to, uh, to Palestinians in both the West Bank and Gaza. But uh, Hamas has then uh, become far more militant and has developed a capacity to make essentially homemade rockets, which are... Uh, are very effective. It's had some Iranian, a lot of Iranian help in doing that and has become a, a far greater menace to Israel now than Fatah ever was. We will exact a price that will be remembered by them and Israel's other enemies for decades to come. The savage attacks that Hamas perpetrated against... Hamas, of course, as well as having a social services wing and a militant wing, it does have a political wing Managing Gaza is a complicated business. Hamas collects taxes. It builds tunnels. They're remarkably good tunnel uh, builders. They have tunnels that actually go under the border with, with Egypt. And the overall administration it involves uh, goods being brought in, um, being sold within Gaza or being given away by the uh, the social services wing, but they are taxed as well. It's a complicated business. Mm. And so Hamas has been in control of Gaza for quite some time now. During that time to now, what, what has the conflict with Israel been like and how have the two dealt with each other? Well, it's it's been an extraordinarily hostile uh, relationship. Israel has tried both sticks and carrots. Uh, there have been essentially, well, there have been several major wars between Hamas and Israel since uh, Hamas took over the Gaza Strip in 2007. And in each of these, uh, Hamas has been firing rockets at Israeli cities and Israel, uh, in retaliation, has been uh, hitting Hamas. Now, the destruction of infrastructure has been enormous in all of these wars, and uh, Hamas has simply uh, set about rebuilding it and um, quite remarkably has largely done so. But the, the big problem for Israel is that None of this has worked in terms of, of making the people get sick of Hamas and, and throw it out in some way, uh, nor has it worked in terms of enabling Israel at any time to get rid of Hamas a, as a threat. Uh, well, I guess get on to the carrots. This was a very clever tactic by, by Israel and for, for quite a while it seemed to be working. It agreed to uh, basically it would uh, security clear up to about 20,000 Gazans and allow them to, to come into uh, Israel to, to, to work every day. And Israel, I think, before uh, the 7th of October, when the uh, Hamas attack on, on Israel occurred, uh, had been lulled into a false sense of security that uh, this, this carrot was uh, so successful that Hamas 
would now be a, a relatively benign organisation. I don't think they ever thought it, it wouldn't be a menace and it had the capability of being a menace, but they were actually able almost to buy it off with uh, allowing uh, workers to come in and work in Israel. The big problem was um, this false sense of security was false and uh, Israel's intelligence and security uh, didn't pick up signs that uh, Hamas was preparing a major attack. Mm. Seeing as Hamas has such a deep involvement in the administration of Gaza, how much of a challenge would it be to remove Hamas entirely from the territory? Is it even possible? Well, I, I don't think it is. The problem for Israel is that Hamas is not just a, a militant or a social services organisation, it's also an ideology. Uh, and irony uh, is that although there's a lot of corruption within Hamas and there's a lot of dislike of Hamas in Gaza, uh, this stage uh, isn't any real alternative. Even if Israel manages to de decapitate the leadership of Hamas, almost certainly more junior members of the organisation will put their hands up and say, well, we're the leaders now, we, we are Hamas. Uh, and uh, Israel will have the same problem that it had um, before the attacks of uh, 7 October. Uh, so I, I don't think it's going to be successful. And in the meantime, of course, there is some horrible, absolutely dreadful uh, human rights um, violations that, that are occurring. The, uh, the blockade of the, of the strip, uh, the, the bombing of uh, civilian areas is awful to see and we see that on our, our television screens uh, all, all the time. Um, so it's, this is doing Israel a lot of harm in terms of its international image. The various leaks that have occurred in the American press have indicated that uh, America has two worries about what Israel is doing now. One is that it's not very clear on what its strategy is for its ground assault and just when, when it actually will be seen to be achieving outcomes. The second thing is uh, that Israel doesn't appear to have a strategy for what happens on the day after the, the guns fall silent. And the United States is very anxious that Israel come up with both of those. Coming up after the break, what does the future look like for Gaza? For longtime editor Winnie Dunn, there were a few rules she followed when writing her debut novel. I really don't subscribe to writing for the sake of, you know, trauma dumping or getting your trauma out. That's what a therapist is for, please. <laughs> Please go see a therapist. We're very pro-therapy on yeah, this. Yeah, if, that's, no, if that's what you're using writing for. I'm Michael Williams, and on this week's very therapeutic episode of Read This, I chat with Winnie Dunn. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. As a a 7am listener, you're already familiar with many of the journalists who work for The Saturday Paper. For a limited time, subscribe to Australia's leading independent news source, The Saturday Paper, and you'll receive The Saturday Paper's stainless steel coffee cup, made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer.
Ian, we're talking about the goal of removing Hamas and whether it's even possible, but the big question is what would come next and who else could be able to run Gaza or other ideas for the future of this territory? Yeah, uh, I mean, I wrote an article last week which really set out the six options, which I thought uh, were the only ones that had any potential viability, but none of them were really in any sense uh, good for Israel. The first one is for Israel to totally reoccupy the Gaza Strip, which really means to uh, have their own troops managing 2.3 million people, um, and, and they'll soon be about 3 million people within about a decade. President Biden has said that that's not an option. The second one is for the Israelis just simply having decapitated part of the Hamas leadership to declare victory and leave. But that will not solve the problem. Hamas will will still be there. The third one we've just discussed, that's for the PA to take over, the Palestinian Authority. And for, for many reasons, I, I can't see that happening. Palestinian Authority is, uh, doesn't have a good reputation at this stage. Its leader, Mahmoud Abbas, uh, was elected for a four-year term in 2005. He's still there. So uh, there's no confidence whatsoever in in him as a leader. He has very little authority. Uh, The fourth is for perhaps a a non-aligned Palestinian, one who is not uh, identified with Fatah or, or Hamas, to take over. There are a few of these people around, One of them is uh, a man called uh, Mohammed Dahlan, who actually was born in uh, the Gaza Strip, but has lived in the West Bank as well and now lives in in the UAE. He would almost certainly have a target on his back. He'd be seen to be doing Israel's job for it. And that would be the same with any other local leaders who, who might take over in Hamas's place. The fifth idea has been an Arab force, getting a force that might come from, say, Jordan, Egypt, um, Saudi Arabia, perhaps UAE, that, that sort of thing. But again, all of these people, you know, such a force would be seen to be doing Israel's work for it and they would have targets on their backs. And how large a force are you going to need in order to control 2.4 million people? It's, it's certainly uh, not something that any of the Arab states would be prepared to sign up for, in my view. The final one is for an international force, uh, uh, perhaps a UN force. But the reality is that Israel has no confidence in the United Nations. Now, they're the six, and I don't see any of them working. Now, maybe uh, the Americans and the Israelis can come up with a seventh that I'm not aware of, but I'm highly doubtful. Yeah, and hearing you lay out all of those options, it it does seem like there isn't a neat solution or vision of what Gaza could look like after this conflict. What does that reality say about how much or how little long-term thinking has gone into the war we're seeing today? Well, the Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, announced that uh, almost immediately after the attacks of the 7th of October that Israel would completely destroy Hamas. Now, that at the time, there appeared to be a lot of support for that. But interestingly, uh, most recent polling has shown that 49% of Israelis think that that would be a bad idea now. It's partly because they're not sure what the Israeli government would and what the Israeli forces would achieve by going in. Uh, they can see that there inevitably are going to be a lot of military casualties, but they're bigger 
concern, of course, is with the over 200 hostages. They are almost certainly uh, scattered in many parts of Gaza and they will be in harm's way of the Israeli bombing of Gaza and also of Israeli uh, ground uh, assault on Gaza. And almost certainly some of these uh, uh, will be killed as a result. But uh, the big problem is that almost certainly Hamas is not going to let all of the hostages go. It may let some of them go uh, simply to stop the Israeli attack. But I very much doubt that it will let all of them go because hostages are extremely valuable to to Hamas. It's a very strong bargaining chip. This is you know, a horrible thing to talk about. And obviously one cannot in any sense condone what, what Hamas is doing. But it's the reality of, of what Israel faces. And the other thing, the final thing is that international pressure is going to grow. The attack which occurred on the Jabalia refugee camp, which killed, as far as I know at this stage, about 50 people, uh, was carried out by Israel to kill one member of Hamas. And at this stage, the whole question of proportionality related to international humanitarian law comes into play. Is it actually within the realms of uh, international humanitarian law for Israel to kill 50 people in order to kill one Hamas member. That's something that international lawyers are going to have to argue about. Ian, thanks so much for speaking with me today. You're very welcome. Sloane Crosley is known for her funny and acerbic personal essays, but her new memoir digs much deeper to examine the loss of her best friend. Join me, Michael Williams, as I chat with Sloane about Grief is for People. Find it wherever you listen. Also in the news today, Foreign Minister Penny Wong is calling for Egypt to open a humanitarian corridor for the 88 Australians who are currently stuck in Gaza. Penny Wong also reiterated her calls for humanitarian pauses in the conflict so aid can be brought into Gaza and civilians can be allowed out. And sexual consent activist Chanel Contos has used an address at the National Press Club to call for equal, non-transferable parental leave to address gender stereotypes. Contos said the policy would help to unpick sexist attitudes that contribute to rape culture in Australian society. I'm Ange McCormack. This is 7am. We'll be back again tomorrow.